Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Do we have any 15 or 16 or 17 year olds in here? Raise your hand if we have, I see a couple over there, a few, few scattered around. What would be a gift that most young people at that age would like probably more than anything else? Right around that 16 year old getting your driver's license, probably a car, right? That'd probably be if you could get a car around that age. And uh, what if I told a 15 or a 16 or a 17 year old, the ones that raised their hand in here, I've got the keys right here in my pocket to a 1969 Lauren Mustang Fastback. I know you like some of those cars there. And some of you like those cars. And, and I even got a picture of the, the car I'm going to give to you there. There it is. And it's not fully restored, but it's black. You can see what you want to do with it. And uh, that might be one of the greatest days of that young person's life, right? Forget a 16-year-old, it might be one of the greatest days of a 36 or a 56 or a 76-year-old's life, right? And, uh, and what if I, I gave him the keys and I said, I got that car for you. Just one little thing I need to mention, show him the next picture. It doesn't come with an engine. <laughs> that gift just became way less exciting, didn't it? I've got it. This is a real car that was for sale. There's the listing for this car, literally without the engine. You can show the next one there. And this car, they're listing it at $10,000. The value of that 1969 Mustang Fastback uh, right there with no engine, that what, what they're, they're offering it at is $10,000. That value of that car without an engine. The value of this same car restored and with an engine. The next slide, we have two of them there. One's at $130 and one's at $150. These are listings found on the internet the difference of value that comes because it has power or it doesn't. It's got an engine, that, that power, that source of power, the value and usefulness of the vehicle is found in that which brings it power. Without the power, it's really, it's nice, you can look at it, but it really is useless. All it's gonna be is a lawn ornament. It's gonna sit there and do nothing. It's not going to perform that which it was created for. It's not going to do that. We just had on Wednesday night our eighth grade and 12th grade graduation and, and, and either one, eighth or 12th grade, a 13 or 14 year old or a 17 or 18 year old. What have I told them? I, I got you the newest iPhone 12 plus Max Pro, whatever the newest thing they came out with at the recent Apple event was that can see to the moon and to Mars and all the things it can do. I got you this new phone. The only problem is it has no battery. It has no power cord. Without the power, that which would be a really exciting gift that somebody would be really excited about really becomes disappointing. It becomes kind of useless. It's worthless to actually benefit our lives in any way without the proper power source. The same is true with our spirituality. Jesus said it this way in John chapter number 15. He said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. 
If you can see it up there, uh, if your, your eyesight is good, would you read the last line with me, starting with the word for aloud? Ready? Begin. For without me, ye can do. Without me, ye can do what? He didn't say without me, you can do some things kind of good. Without me, you can accomplish a few things, but if you really want the big stuff, then come to me. That's not what he said. He didn't say without me, you can get a lot done, but you're gonna need me for the, call me if it gets too big for you. He said, abide in me, and if you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. You're very fruitful, valuable. Your life matters, it counts. But without me, he said, you can do what, church? Nothing. You can do nothing. The only thing, much like that fastback Mustang, the only thing that makes our lives matter is having them plugged into the right source of power. This morning, for the next few moments, I'd like to bring a message on powerless faith. Powerless faith. We continue our verse-by-verse series through the book of Acts. Today, we marks our 60th message in this book over the last couple of years on Sunday mornings. And we find ourselves in Acts 19. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Acts 19. If you don't, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And I say it just about every Sunday, the power is found in God's Word. I'd like you to see it for yourself where we're at. And if you're in the habit of maybe making notes in your Bible or in a journal and underlining, some people do that, others don't like to do that, whatever the case may be. And if you have a a tablet or a phone you're following along with, I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible this morning. We're going to be in Acts 19. And you'll recall last week we began and we looked at the first uh, seven verses of this chapter and we looked at the gift of tongues. We talked about that last week and, and that was a fun message and we we looked through there. We're going to pick it up but la- in verse 8. Last week we saw here in Ephesus, Paul comes and there's a mini Pentecost of sorts. The Holy Spirit comes down like he did in Acts 2 at, at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes down and, and fills these new believers with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues. And we looked at that last week And it was interesting that God had us there last week. I hadn't planned it, but we talked about Pentecost. We talked about the Holy Spirit, and we talked about the mini Pentecost here in Ephesus. And last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, uh, 50 days following uh, following what we celebrate as Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. And so God had us there on, on this mini Pentecost we studied. He had us there on Pentecost Sunday last week. Verse number eight, chapter 19, verse number eight, Paul is here in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And he, that's speaking of Paul, would you read verse eight aloud with me? Ready? Begin. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. This was Paul's habit most places that he went. When he would come to a new city, he would almost always go to the synagogue. A couple of reasons for that. That's where the Jews, of course, worshipped. They were very serious about the Old Testament. They were looking for a Messiah. Today, Orthodox Jews are still looking for their Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Paul had the answer of what they were looking for. Paul knew the scriptures. He had been a ruler of the Jews. He knew their religion inside and out. He had been one of the chief ones in their religion. He had put Christians to death. And so Paul would go, and he was a very respected teacher. And, and it was very common in those days when a, a visiting rabbi would come to town, they would invite them to come speak at synagogue. And so Paul would go to the synagogue and he would begin to, to talk with them from the Old Testament, that which he knew better than they did. And he would point and say, Messiah has, has come. He would preach Jesus. 
And a lot of times that went good for a day or two and then they wanted to run him out of town or a week or two. Here in Ephesus, it went well for three months. In that verse we just read, Paul is preaching boldly the kingdom of God, Jesus. He's preaching boldly the Messiah and he's there for three months. Verse number nine, look at verse number nine. But when divers, that just means different people, when divers were hardened and believed not, by the way, when, we, when you preach Jesus, some people will not believe, they'll just reject it, and, so, and then they'll walk away. Others will aggressively fight against it. We see it here in verse 9. Some believe not, but spake evil of that way. What way? The way of Christ, the way of Christians. Of that way before the multitude. So when that happened, they began to cause a ruckus. Paul departed from them and separated the disciples. He brought those that had been saved, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And we have here, Tyrannus uh, was, was one of three brothers from the same family. Um, the other two boys were named Rex and Sorus. And uh, that's a bad joke, wasn't it? It's not my fault. Once you turn 40, the dad jokes just start coming out. My daughter recently, I came home from work about a week ago and she had been in a store. She bought me this dad joke loading, please wait. And so there's more where that came from. I'll be here all week. But, but uh, Tyrannus, that, that wasn't, he didn't have brothers named Tyrannosaurus Rex. Tyrannus, in all seriousness, who he was, he may have been the owner of a lecture hall. More, li more than likely, he was a philosopher, a teacher. And so what would happen probably, what, would, what it was, is that was a place that Tyrannus would speak in the mornings. Interesting because that name some theologians and scholars believe that it was a nickname because it literally means our tyrant. And so if he were a teacher, it may have been a nickname given to him by his students. How many of you had a teacher like that? You might have nicknamed them Tyrannus. And uh, don't lift your hand up, especially if you were at Newport Christian School, all right? But, 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 but that, that, his name literally does mean our tyrant. And so he may have been a teacher, but he had a place that he would teach daily. And, and then... What, we, what would, Paul would do is he would use that lecture hall, and in, in that culture, much like other cultures to this day, they would have a siesta time. They would have a break in the hot part of the day, the heat of the day. From 11 to 4, all, everything would close down. Most people would go home and sleep. Paul would do his tent making in the morning to pay his way, and then from 11 to 4, he would preach five hours daily. He would preach and teach and converse Jesus Christ, and he's doing it now. He started in the synagogue. They started fighting against him, so he goes to this lecture hall. He goes in the school of one Tyrannus, and we see here verse number 10, and this continued by the space of how long, church? This continued by the space of how long? Two years, so that, look at this. This is beautiful so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Paul, by the way, his life was not easy. He worked a full-time job as a tent maker in his business and then preached and taught and evangelized five hours a day, five or six days a week. He would preach daily for two years. That if you, that's approximately, it's over 3,000 hours of lecture. The equivalent of 130 24-hour days of lecturing in a two-year period. In addition to tent making. May I just say this? In your life and in mine, it seems that we all want what's easy. I preached a message a while ago about, about our comfort it seems in America that we all want what's easy, the easy path, the easy road, Christianity to the same. May I say that making an eternal impact in somebody's life is not always easy. 
It will take for a church, it will take great personal sacrifice and dedication to see a church move forward. It's, it's been said, great churches aren't built with spare time and pocket change. Daily investments we see here from Paul, we see in this verse, daily investments lead to astronomical impact over time. This is a great reminder for all of us. We all want the big impact we all want the whatever it might be at work and in, in the family, in the home, the big victory. And what does it normally take? It takes daily investments over time. And daily, regular investments over time create ast- That's true in a relationship. It's true in a marriage. It's true in a family. It, it, and I, I'm, our family will go on a vacation this summer. But if, if you work 18 hours a day all year long and then you think, well, I'm just, but I'm going to take two weeks off and spend two weeks with my family, that relationship is probably not going to be what it should be. We, it's, we can't make it all up for quantity or quality time, both. Quantity and quality. And Paul here, that day we see, it's what a beautiful verse. He continued by the space of two years. And after that time, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. And and we see in Paul, as he did this, the entire region heard the gospel. Uh, Daily investments lead to astronomical impact over time. That's true at work. We love the spectacular, but greatness is usually achieved in faithfulness to the mundane. You know, most of your marriage is not the spectacular. Most of it, it's the mundane. You know that most of your experience at life as a Christian, most days are not the spectacular. Now there are some spectacular days, but most of them are just mundane faithfulness and godliness. You know, most of, in in ministry, most of ministry is not every day is this unbelievable victory. It's just faithfulness in planting, 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 pulling some weeds, pruning, whatever it might be. And then God gives the increase. We love the spectacular, but greatness is usually achieved in faithfulness to the mundane. In the Christian life, this is a good reminder. It's not my message, but from this verse, it's a good reminder. There is some impact and fruit and blessings that only come with longevity. Stay faithful, church. Keep serving. Keep growing. Keep helping people. You, 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 if you have children or you've had children or you've, you have children in your family, you, you know that most of the time you don't wake up and the next morning you don't, you don't wake up and say, you go to bed one night, you wake up the next day and look at your kid and say, you grew a foot last night. I haven't heard of that happening too often. But you know what happens? You grow a little bit every day. You invest a little bit. You eat a meal every day. And what, guess what happens? Over the course of a few months or a few years, the growth is spectacular. My mom and brother are visiting from Northern California and they flew in yesterday and picked them up, they, Ashlyn picked them up from the airport and she got home and, and the boys got home from their work yesterday and TJ walked in the door and she looked into TJ. I think she saw, she saw TJ like six or eight weeks ago. Oh man, you've gotten so big. Well, I haven't said that anywhere in the last two months, but what is that little growth that nobody sees over the course of a time period, it turns into big growth. The same, it's a good reminder in our Christian lives. You know what you need? You need daily time in God's word. You know what you need to do? Be a daily witness at work. Show daily love to your family. 
daily gratitude. Keep serving, keep growing, keep helping people. And before you know it, you'll look back at amazing things. Paul, the first day he preached in the synagogue, the whole region of Asia did not know Jesus Christ. But after two years of studying and preparing and preaching and answering questions and being misunderstood and being attacked and being opposed, after two years, everybody in the region had heard of Jesus. Those that Paul had reached went out and reached others and told others. And those daily seed planting turned into huge impact. It was during these two years that the churches at Colossae and Hierapolis, and we believe the seven churches of Revelation, were founded. Paul's converts taking the gospel to this entire region. We have the church at Colossae, Hierapolis, and the seven in Revelation being planted from Paul's daily impact over these two years. Look at verse number 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. This is probably, and I'm not necessarily trying to be funny, but this is probably where the televangelist that sells the $100 handkerchief, where they got that idea. If you call today, I'll pray over this handkerchief and I'll send it to you in the mail. I've been, I think it was Costa Rica was the country we were in, where people come to this magical fountain they believe in. And, and there's a, the Catholic Church sells all kinds of things. They make millions of dollars off of this. And this water supposedly has these healing properties. And, and, and we, we, people get these ideas and, and we'll sell, well, it came from here. What happened here, God is allowing, we don't see Paul doing a ton of miracles in his ministry, but here God is allowing allowing Paul to do some amazing healing miracles and people would come and there would be a handkerchief that Paul had touched and he would come and people were getting saved and God was using that to expand the, the, the fame, if you will, of Jesus, not of Paul, by the way, of Jesus and getting the gospel out. And, uh, and, and, and it's a good thing to remember. I'm not, gonna hit, I'm not teaching on healing today. I taught on tongues last week, but it's good to remember in the thousands of years covered by scripture, we see three distinct seasons each, only a few decades, less than 100 years each, where God allowed his children to perform miracles like we see mentioned here. Um, God is still performing miracles today, but, but if I tell you that I can, I can heal something by touching your head, I, I don't believe that God can heal whatever he wants to heal, and the prayer of the faith shall save, and God does heal the sick, uh, but not in the ways that we see here as far as if I send you my handkerchief that I preached with today, you're going to be healed. And, and, and we see here that these miracles, we see that during the time of Moses, then we see it again during the time of Elijah, and then we see it during the time of Jesus and his apostles. And the one reason maybe that God allowed Paul to do these miracles, Ephesus was a center for the occult. Much demonic activity, demonic, uh, uh, you will see it later on next week, we'll see it in, in chapter 19. And so God allows Paul to perform some special miracles here as it demonstrated God's power in the middle of Satan's territory. Paul's miracles, it, it demonstrated God's power in the middle of Satan's territory. But Satan is a master imitator. Whatever God has, Satan has an imitation for it. God wants to give you lifelong love. Satan will give you week-long, day-long, month-long lust. God wants to give you joy. Satan promises long-term joy. Satan promises short-term pleasure. 
Whatever God has, Satan has an imitator. So God has Paul doing miracles. Let's see, somebody's gonna come on. We're gonna see some imitators trying to do the things that Paul had done. Look at verse number 13. So evil spirits are going out of people. People are being healed. Verse number 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. It's an interesting phrase, this interesting phrase there. They didn't even say, we adjure you by the Jesus that we know. They come to somebody that's demon-possessed. And that's, by the way, spiritual warfare and the, the, the spiritual realm, that's a real thing. We don't see a ton of that. We haven't historically in America, I think in, in a lot of ways, because it's been a primarily founded upon Christian principles. You travel to other countries that have very little light, and you talk to preachers or pastors or missionaries or Christians, you'll hear of many things with occult and voodoo and demon possession and, and crazy things like that. The Bible talks about that. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so these guys, there's some, some religious people. They're Jews. <clears throat> they're, they're actually pastor sons, if you will, Jewish priest sons. Some religious people that see an opportunity for self-gain and self-promotion through religious means. Hey, that's pretty cool. Paul just tells people, Jesus is stronger than your devil. Get out of him. And the demon gets out of him. You know how much money we could make, guys? And it's, it's brothers, seven brothers. You know how much money we could make? Hey, so they come to the next guy that's demon-possessed. Hey, Jesus, the one that Paul's been preaching. I don't know who he is, but he's powerful. I know that. Jesus, who Paul's been preaching, tells you to get out of that guy. And now look what happens. Verse number 14. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. These seven pastor's sons go, going around, and, and they're, they're, they're not believers. They're not followers of Christ. They're just kind of religious hirelings using religion to try to get uh, to advance themselves. Verse number 16, and the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Again, a good reminder anytime that miracles are happening it was Jesus' name that was magnified not some pastor or healer or, or, or spiritual leader. But what happens is these guys come in, they know of somebody that, that struggles with a demon and they come in and they say, we demand by the, by the name of Jesus that Paul's been preaching about that you come out of them. And do you see what, what verse, I think I skipped over it, verse number 15. Look at what the evil spirit said. Read verse 15 aloud. Verse 15, ready, begin. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? He said, he comes in. He comes to the house. Get out of it, get, get out of him by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. And, and the, the spirit, and he, he looks at me, he says, I know Jesus. You're not Jesus. I know Paul. You're not Paul. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And immediately that the demonic power comes and he overpowers seven men. The Bible says that, that in, in his house, these guys are beaten, they're wounded, they're bloodied. They run screaming bloody and naked from the house. He stripped, that, 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 the man possessed by the devil stripped their clothes off, beat them up. They're wounded, they're walking out and they run out there. And what do we see here? We see a powerless faith. We see somebody speaking in the name of Jesus 
who has no power. We see somebody trying to do something good who has no power. There, and we see here a powerless faith. And may I just say there is a danger for all of us to live our Christian lives in our own strength. Oh, there would be no one here, I don't think, I hope, maybe there would be a few, but the vast majority in this room, you would not say, I believe I'm going to get to heaven based on my own good works. No, I, I'm saved by grace through faith. It's Jesus that's going to get me to heaven, but now I'm going to do the rest of this thing on my own. I'm going to show everybody what a good, strong Christian I am. Look at all the good I've done. I'm trying to make my good outweigh my bad. And we see here a powerless faith. It's a danger for all of us, especially if we've been following God for any length of time. We can learn to operate in the flesh, leaning on our gifting, our experience. A talented musician can sing beautifully without any anointing of God. An experienced teacher in the church can share truth in an impressive way without ever humbly praying and seeking God. I've probably spoken in a religious, if you will, a Christian setting to a church or some youth group or something like that, probably in the neighborhood of 2,000 times or more. I've probably done that. And, and do you know the times when I find myself in a place I'm not comfortable? You know what my first response is? I, I humbly seek the Lord. I go, God, I can't do this. This is too big for me. I remember the first time I ever preached in front of an entire church service. It wasn't just like a children's church or something. And man, I was nervous. I was scared to death. I studied and I prayed and I practiced in front of the mirror and I talked. And, and, and some of that may have been pride, not wanting to be embarrassed, but I think others of it was a, a humility of God. This is too big for me. I remember the first time I came here and I was going to preach about six years ago in August, the first Sunday. And I remember in the hotel room right there on Jamboree and Michelson, right across from, from the, the soup plantation over there, I remember going into the room and closing the door here in Orange County and getting on my knees and saying, God, this is too big for me. If you want our family here, you've got to make it clear. God, help me to only say what you want me to say. And, and there was a humility. God, I need your power. I can't do this in my own strength. It's too big for me. But you know what the danger and temptation is after you've spoken a few hundred times or a couple thousand times? You know what I can do? Oh, I still read the Bible, but I can, I can go and study a little bit, read, prepare a message, Find a great joke like Tyrannosaurus Rex. I knew that one would absolutely kill. Find a heart-wrenching illustration and never seek the power of God as I proclaim his name and his word. Do it in my own strength. It's easy for all of us to seek to do spiritual things in the power of the flesh. God, keep us from that. Church, we need God. We need God in every role and responsibility of our lives. If you, have a, if you were a Christian and you had a young child, maybe you had an experience like me when you held that for the first time and said, God, this little baby girl, it's, I, I, I can't do it. God, you've got to guide her. And God, would you help her to come to know you? And God, would you help her to fall in love with you? And God, would you help her to live for you? God, it's too big for me when, when that baby first came. But after you've been a parent for a little while, it's easy to parent in the flesh, isn't it? In our own strength. No, we need God in every role. We need God to be the right employee at work tomorrow. The Bible says, by the way, where you work, you're not serving man, you're serving the Lord. We need God to be the right husband or wife. We need the power of God to raise the children he's given us. We need God's strength to live this Christian life for a lifetime. And quickly, I want you to see three marks of powerless faith from this passage so that we can strive to avoid these things. Let's take inventory. Do we find these in our lives? Number one, what do we see in this powerless faith of the sons of Siva? Number one, we see them saying the right things without a real relationship. 
We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. They said the right things. They knew what it was supposed to look like. But there was no relationship. It was not their, their service to God, if you will. By the way, it looks like they're trying to serve God. Their service to God was not flowing from a heart-level relationship. It was all about we know how to say the right things. We know how to do the right things. We know how to look right. And we know how to talk right. We know how to dress right. We know how to act right. And we also can fall into the trap of living an outside-in Christianity. And Paul, but Jesus said it this way, it's whited sepulchers. The tomb is polished on the outside, but the inside is dead like men's bones. And he said, he said it's not an outside-in. This thing of being a follower of Jesus is not from the outside-in. No, it's a relationship with me first and foremost and that flows out in the fruits of the Spirit. You don't plant fruits. You plant a healthy tree and a healthy tree naturally brings forth fruit. You get the roots deep and healthy and it will bring forth fruit in our lives. And we have absolutely no power when we live that outside in. Well, I dress right. I talk right. I look right. My social media is right. But how is your heart? Have you learned how to say the right things but you have no relationship? You come to church each and every week and maybe you're not even a follower of God. Jesus said in that day, there will be many that say, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he's going to look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. What is he saying? You did the right things, but you did it without a relationship. Is that you? A powerless faith. You might be saved, but your faith is just as powerless in your day-to-day living because it's all about what you can do, not who he is in your life and in mine. You don't walk with him. You don't humbly seek him. You don't need to. You know how to get dressed and go to church. You know how to say, there, hey, brother, good to see you. God's good, isn't he? Boy, his word is wonderful, and you haven't cracked it open. All of us get there, don't we? The longer you're saved, it's easy to fall into that trap of saying the right things without a real relationship. Our belief in God, in Christ, must go beyond mental ascent into heart transformation. Jesus is not just a religious magic charm for us, but should be a personal relationship that informs and guides every part of our lives. Again, how many people are sitting in churches today across our country and around the world singing the right songs, saying the right things, but have no true relationship with the Savior? It's a powerless faith. Secondly, what do we see? Not only saying the right things without a real relationship. Secondly, doing the right things for the wrong reasons. I've heard, I've heard pastors, preachers say motives don't matter. Couldn't be farther from the truth. And I I understand character, we should do the things we're supposed to do even when we don't feel like it. I understand the heart behind that. Your motives don't matter, just do right no matter what. I get it, and I'm, I'm for that. Do right when you don't feel like it. That's a good thing. But our motives do matter. Why we do things does matter. God does see the heart. He doesn't just care about your external behaviors. He cares about why you do what you do. Notice what, talk to me now. Is it a good thing to deliver somebody from being demon possessed? Talk to me, yes or no? Is that a good thing? To help somebody that's possessed of a demon to be exercised? Is that a good thing? Doing the right things. Were they doing it for the right reason? It was for their gain. For their glory. Hey, this is a good business opportunity. Look at this, guys. Paul came to town. He's turning this thing upside down. Hey, guys, I think we could start our own little get rid of the demons business here. We could, we could, we could post it online and get it going, and this will be great. 
doing the right things for the wrong reasons. It's good to deliver someone who is demon possessed, but they did it for their own glory, for their own gain, for their own advancement. By the way, we can do the same thing as pastors and as Christians. We do the right things, but not for his glory. We do them so that others will notice, so that others will appreciate us, so that others will approve of us, so that we can get ahead in this little political group or in this group of Christians. We can be approved by them. And, and I don't do this because it's what God's led me to do. I, I use you for my own gain and glory as a pastor. Oh, God, keep us from that as Christians and as spiritual leaders. God looks at that and he rejects that. Isn't that what happened to King Saul? He was doing good things. He was doing the right things. And Samuel came and said, what? You're doing the right thing, but you're doing it in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. And God has rejected you. God sees your heart, Christian, and is far more concerned with what he knows about you than what others think about you. May I say that, that one more time? God sees your heart, and he is far more concerned with what he knows about you than what others think about you. It's a powerless faith to live not caring what he knows about us, living a secret double life, doing all the right things but for the wrong reasons so that we can, and, and what others think of us is completely different than what God knows of us. Now, by the way, none of us are perfectly consistent Christians. On some level, we're all hypocrites. If me and my wife have a fight on a Sunday morning, we don't bring that fight into the church on Sunday morning, all right? We're not yelling at each other. We, we put on the good face just like the rest of you, all right? And it doesn't happen very often. It's only when she's wrong that that happens. But, <laughs> but when it does, all right? Which is never, right? She's never been wrong. So that's, that's 21 years. That's amazing how that works. So we haven't had a fight. But, um, but, but doing the right, that's a powerless faith. And then lastly, what do we see from powerless faith? powerless faith, we will, we will be people who will be reaping the empty fruit of our human efforts. You see it in verse number 16? They got beat up, embarrassed, stripped of their clothes, running seven. How, how, how embarrassing is that? Seven brothers couldn't take on one dude? What happened to you? Well, we were, um, we were like, like getting rid of that guy with the demon, and then, and how many people were there to beat you up? Well, just one. All seven of you? Yeah, all seven of us. He took, like, stripped all of your clothes off, beat you all up. You're all wounded, bleeding, bloody. Who knows if there's broken bones? They reaped the empty fruit of their human efforts. Alistair Begg quipped, the seven sons of Siva became the seven streakers of Siva. <laughs> they were trying to do God's work in their own strength. And may I say this, trying to do God's work in our own strength will always leave us empty and embarrassed in the end. Trying to do God's work in our own strength will always leave us empty and embarrassed in the end. I heard one pastor say it this way, God's work done in man's strength is doomed to fail miserably or succeed even more miserably. We've been reading a book with our pastoral staff. It's called The Emotionally Healthy Leader, talking about some of our areas where we need to improve as leaders. And you know what's one of the scary things that's come out of that book as we've talked? Is that sometimes in Christian ministry, someone leading on empty can do great things for a season. So just because things look good doesn't mean things are good. Are we, are we living this Christian life in our own strength 
or in his strength. And just because the church is growing, just because the, the, the business is booming, just because the bank accounts look good, God knows what's really going on in our hearts. And here, the, their human efforts led them to complete emptiness, embarrassment, shame. It is possible to have a measure of success, even seemingly spiritual success in our own strength and power, but you'll be miserable because you know it's all just a facade and you'll feel like a two-faced hypocrite and that won't last and you'll, you and I will end up like the sons of Siva in pain, in embarrassment, in failure. A life of powerless faith will be one of emptiness, of shame, and our ultimate demise. Do you find yourself here this morning? If you were to be honest before God, have you lost the joy of your salvation? Are you operating in the flesh rather than the spirit? Do you care more about what people think about you than what God knows about you? You know what we need to get back to? We need to get back to seeking God, knowing God, desiring God, craving God, humbling ourselves, getting more serious about our private relationship than our public persona, spend more time in pleasing God than being acknowledged by man, prioritize private devotion over public reputation. Next Sunday, we're going to look in more detail to the answer to a powerless faith in the follow-up message, the rest of this chapter entitled, A Powerful Faith. We're going to look at the marks of powerful faith. But has your Christianity grown powerless? Are you there saying the right things? But if you're honest, there's, that relationship really isn't what it used to be. Oh, you still look right. You talk right. You dress right. You sing the songs with us. You might even lift up a hand. But the heart isn't right. Do you, are you there doing the right things? You're not, I'm not living for the devil. I'm doing the right things. But for the wrong reasons. It's not for his glory. It's for yours. It's so that people will acknowledge me. Are you reaping that emptiness of your human effort? If, you, if your Christianity has grown powerless, may I say this? It's not God that has changed. Our dependence on him has. You maybe have heard the story of the old married couple. They'd been married a few decades. They had one of those old cars, had the bench seat there in the front. And the wife piped up from the passenger seat. She said to the husband, she said, I remember when we first got married, you used to put your arm around me in the car. You used to, we would hold hands going down the road. I remember we used to sit so close. And the husband responded from behind the driver's seat, I haven't moved. And may I say this? Sometimes it feels that way with God. It used to be so much closer. God's power hasn't changed. If you feel distant from God, he hasn't moved. His love isn't any less. His power isn't weakened. God hasn't moved. His power hasn't lessened. How does a church grow powerless? When we operate in our own strength, we say the right things without the right relationship. We do the right things for the wrong reasons. We do it for our namesake or somebody else to approve us and not for his glory. Remember your first love and return to that childlike faith, that love, that devotion, that desire to know and serve him above all else. I have a thread, a text thread with a few of my ministry friends, my brother-in-law, who's a church planner in, in and, and it's a few guys I coached in college that are still friends 20-some years later. Uh, my brother-in-law, who's a pastor in Arizona, Pastor Sammy, who's a, a teammate of his, and, and a pastor and an assistant pastor in Hawaii that I had the privilege to coach. And one of them in our thread a few weeks ago sent a song about remembering how we felt toward God when we first got saved. They sent a song, the, the youth pastor in Hawaii sent us all the song to listen to about remembering what it was like, that devotion when we were first saved. And here's the text that I will show this, throw the screenshot up. Here's Sammy responded, yes, sir. Here's what he said. 
we all started from the heart. When I first got saved, I remember writing scripture in a notebook and really thinking that God wrote the Bible for me. 11-year-old kid, didn't know any deep truths, but I could almost hear God speak. Here's what he says. I'm still trying to make my way back to that 11-year-old heart. Help me, Lord. And then he says, Jesus is amazing. Bless his name. Anwar responded, come on, my man. Well, he misspelled it. He got a bad education, but come on, my man. I remember thinking that if this book is true, he's Sammy, myself, Anwar, all were raised by single moms. He said, I remember thinking that if this book is true, then I truly have a father that loves me, and I want nothing more than to spend my life following him. That was 15 years old in a dorm room at youth conference. Was there a time where that was you? And like Sammy said, we're all trying to make it back to that 11-year-old heart. Has your, your faith grown a little powerless? Sons of Siva, no, they weren't saved, I get it. They said the right things without the right relationship. They did the right things, but so that for their glory and their gain, not for his. And guess what that leads to? It leads to reaping empty fruit from our human efforts each and every time. You've listened so well. Will you turn with me to one passage? I promise I'm done. Revelation chapter number two. This is amazing. What, where, where is Paul here in Acts 19? What city is he in? Anybody remember? We're in the city of, talk to me. Starts with the letter E, the city of what? Ephesus. Ephesus. I told you during his two years there that the church at Ephesus was founded. I want you to look at Revelation. The ones who had seen the powerless faith of the sons of Siva, they watched it. They watched the demon beat them up and strip them naked. Look at what the angel of the church writes to the church at Ephesus. Verse number one, Revelation chapter number two, look at verse number one. The very people that watched the story I just told you about today, Verse number one, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in the right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor, the external, thy patience, the external. You're doing some good things and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. You're separated. You're taking good stands. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. You've got good doctrine and hast borne and has patience, and for my sake, namesake has labored and has not fainted. You've not quit. He, this sounds like a great church. Look at, read verse four aloud with me. Ready, begin. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. What did he say? You're doing all the right things, but it's not for the right reasons. You've left your first love. It's a powerless faith. And there's much to be commended in your church, but you've lost the love, the devotion, the relationship. And notice what he says, that's gonna lead you to being powerless. Look at verse five and we're done. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. Remember what it was like when you were that 11 year old boy. And what church? And repent, turn around and do the first works. Get back to what you did the way you loved me, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick. The candlestick is a picture of God's spirit, God's power. Will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Ephesian Christians, you're on the brink of being a powerless church. We got the right doctrine. Great. 
We, we dress right, great. We sound right, we take the right stands. We, false teachers, nothing to do with our church, great. I'm about to be done with your church. I'm about to be done with it. If you don't get back to the relationship. Christianity without a relationship is empty. It's powerless. And there are powerless pastors. I've probably been there, unfortunately, and I probably will be again. I'm not perfect. I pray to God I don't, but I'm sure it has happened, and I pray it's not happening today. But there are powerless pastors, and there are powerless churches, and there are powerless Christians that at one time had the fire of God. They saw the sons of Siva. That's who he's writing to. And he said, you've fallen into the same trap. You're doing what, what you saw. Church, let's get back to faith over sight, to Christ over man, to scripture over culture, to di divinity over humanity, to pleasing God over pleasing man, to serving God over serving self, to living for the eternal over living for the earthly, to scripturally correct over politically correct. Let's reject the, a powerless faith where the Christian life is lived in our own strength and where everything has to make perfect sense. God said, get right or I will remove my power from you. Those who had seen all of this in Acts 19 that, that we've looked at last week, they, they were the ones that the Spirit came and they had spoken in tongues. They had grown cold and complacent. If that's possible for the Ephesian Christians, don't you think it's possible for me and for you to grow cold and complacent and to find ourselves with a form of godliness that denies the power thereof? God doesn't want a form of godliness. He wants a heart on fire for him. Powerless faith. Is that you? If it is, let's take the admonition of the angel that spoke to the church in Revelation. Remember from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.